And now it's time for class session number eight, the second half of Smith of Wooten Major, in which we will pay special attention to the depiction of the fairy king and queen. Okay, then, let us return to Smith. Um, I want to look at basically three things uh, coming through the end of the story. First, uh, his meetings with the fairy queen. We, we talked a little bit about his first meeting with the fairy queen. We didn't know she was the fairy queen uh, last time. But I want to I go back and look at that again, especially in the context of the second meeting that they have. Um, and then I want to look at the fairy king and the way that we see him acting. Um, and from the two of them, I want to be looking at you know, some of the questions that you guys have been very interestingly raising on the discussion forum. That is, what's What's going on here? What do we learn about, about fairies in particular and fairy in general? Why, why are they, what are they doing? Why are they doing this? How do they respond to people? Again, well, last time we talked some about the way in which people are changed and influenced by their connection with fairy. Uh, how do the fairies respond to the people? And why do they do that? Um, so that's, that's sort of the overall thing that I want to get at in looking at those two figures. And then after this, of course, I want to come back to Smith and look at, uh, at Smith's perspective on the end of his story and what is being emphasized uh, through him, what we're sp- sort of supposed to take away from, from the end of his story. Um, so first, the fairy queen. Uh, one meeting at a time. Going back, as I said, to, the, to, the, to her first meeting with Smith. And I want to do, I, 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 feel, uh, I feel that I was unnecessarily or, or, or perhaps unpardonably sloppy last time. I want to go back to the text more uh, and start with, start with data, start with observations. The, the passage is on page 33, where they meet. It's hard to see the page number to the right of the stream illustration. These illustrations, by the way, were done uh, in Tolkien's lifetime uh, and with his approval, uh, just for the record. Um, what do you notice? What is noteworthy or significant about the depiction of the fairy queen during this first meeting? One thing I want to say as context. Um, Smith here is following uh, in a long line of footsteps. That is, he is playing a part in this scene which has been played by many, many people over the course of the history of fairy stories. Uh, That is, there are many fairy stories in which a human person, usually a man, comes across fairies dancing in a ring in, in the woods and approaches them and interrupts their dance. What generally happens when this occurs Anyone familiar with these fairy stories? Yeah, Jordan? They disappear. They disappear. Almost always they disappear. Um, it's usually, sometimes it's, a, uh, it's quite a bad thing for the human in question to do or to have done. Sometimes it's just sort of a tragic thing for him that he, you know, he, he, he perceived the beauty, he tried to, 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 to become part of it or to sort of to reach out to it, and it eluded him, uh, as it almost always does. So anyway, so here's Smith, and he sees them dancing, and he goes up to them as most of the time the people do. And what happens? Liz? Um, she kind of laughs at him and says, um, you're becoming really bold, and you don't have the queen's permission to be here. Have you gotten it? Or... Right, right, good. I mean, so there we see that seems to be in line with the traditional theme, right? The human intruding upon the dance of the fairies, and his intrusiveness is emphasized, right? You, are, you, you have become bold. It's a gentle rebuke, but it's still a rebuke, and he feels it as a rebuke. 
He was abashed. And he recognizes, oh gosh, yes, I have been presumptuous, haven't I? But, Elise? Well, then she like, becomes more gentle and she invites them to join them. Yeah. This, I'm not going to say it's unprecedented, but that's unusual in fairy story history. That the human interrupter of the fairy dance is then not only permitted to continue seeing the dance, but is invited to take part in the dance, is actually integrated into the fairy circle. That's remarkable. And interesting that she would simultaneously, or almost simultaneously, gently rebuke him for his presumption and then elevate him, give him a privilege almost never given to somebody. It reminded me a lot of like, a child sneaking downstairs in the middle of the night to, like, their parents' grown-up party, and then the parents being like, well, all right, now that you're here, come and sit down, have the cake, and listen to the grown-up talk. Yeah, and one of the things it has in common, in common with that is, well, grace, right? You don't deserve to be rewarded for that kind of behavior, but you get rewarded, or you get a reward. You get a gift, when arguably you merit punishment instead, right? So certainly it has that dimension to it. Um, And one of the things, you know, therefore, and of course it's especially interesting in the context of a dance, she is gracious, right? Um, The dancers, we we have the sort of the, the, the play on the word grace, which often occurs, right? The dancers are full of grace. They are, you know, it, it is it, it, it is a grace, a graceful and gracious scene that he is witnessing, and then she shows him profound grace as well. But notice also, it's not just like she changes her mind. Like first she's angry, and then is like, oh, it's okay, come join us. What's her first reaction when she sees him? Yeah. She laughs. She laughs. So even, that's why even the rebuke is a very gentle one at the beginning. He is reminded, certainly, of his intrusion. But this is, it's never a horrible thing from the beginning. Or at least she's not appalled. And that's interesting. It's not, so when he is reminded of his presumption, it's not, clearly not, a question of her standing on her dignity. There's no element of, oh, who are you to imagine you could do this? She is reminding him, who do you think you are? But she's not defensive about her own position. How does the dance affect him? Look what happens when he starts dancing with them. There they danced together, and for a while he knew what it was to have the swiftness and the power and the joy to accompany her. For a while. As a mortal, he couldn't normally handle dancing with them. Notice the things that he had an insufficient capacity for that had to be amplified by grace. Swiftness, the dance is physically beyond him. Power and joy. He... For a while he knew what it was to have the swiftness and the power and the joy to accompany her. 
all three of those things would have been would, would have been normally insufficient for him. In him. You have to reach a certain threshold of joyfulness to be able to participate in the dance of the fairies. And notice, it's a different thing from saying that he takes joy in it. Notice that the thing that's interesting here is he's not saying, while I was doing it, you know, I, it was awesome, like I was made happy, I was made joyful by the act of participating in it. But in order to participate in it, his joy is increased so that he, you know, sort of meets the fairy prereqs for this dance. And that's a very different kind of thing uh, to say. Now, what do we see in the second meeting with the queen? How does he meet her the second time? It is very different from any of his other visits to fairy. Aaron? He gets summoned to her. Yes. Yes. Here, exactly what she asks the first time is true the second time. Right? Have you no fear of what the queen might say if she knew of this? Unless you have her leave. Second time, he not only has her leave, he has, in some sense, though he doesn't fully understand it, her command. It is the only time we see him entering into fairy not of his own plan, not under his own power, not for his own explorations. It has nothing to do with presumption, but is a kind of obedience. He is summoned, and he is going. I agree. I think it's a really important context. What else do we see? What do you make of her description? This is on the bottom of 36. Pardon? Well, she's very different than a human queen. Um, he says that she has no crown and no throne, but she was just royal in her essence. She yeah. She those, those other gilded and gold things to make her royal. She just was. Good, good. I agree. That's a really important emphasis there. Human royalty is distinguished primarily by the trappings, right? I mean, you know, if the, you take the, the, the throne and the crown away from the queen and you dress her up like a normal person and she's going to look and, you know, you would mistake her for a normal person. I, in the Middle Ages, they resisted that idea. Uh, but Tolkien doesn't seem to here. The fairy queen is totally... She doesn't need any throne. She doesn't need any crown. Of course, you know, she has fire on her head, so, I mean, that, that, that helps anyway. Uh, but again, see, that's, that, that's an expression of herself, not an external thing adorning her. Jordan? Um, one point I noted is that she's... Um Taller than the points of their gray spears, which um, it, I've heard described as an aspect of morality in Tolkien's work, height. Height? We will see a certain correlation, at least with authority, not necessarily with virtue. Um, greatness, uh, greatness of person, broadly understood, we will see to be correlated with physical height. Um, that the, the natural and rightful leader of a company is, we will find, like with Aemir, for instance, among the Rohirrim, normally also the tallest among them. Um, Galadriel, we learn, is the tallest elf woman ever. Um, not surprising, because she's, she's, she's uh, one of the greatest. Um, so yes, that's you know here we, we certainly see, and the word he doesn't use the word here. The word that he often uses in the Lord of the Rings to talk about this is stature, 
And when Tolkien uses the word stature, it seems to imply, to suggest more than just physical stature. Um, she, the elven queen, when he comes before the fairy queen here, she has stature, um, which is much more than just her towering, you know, however tall she happens to be. She stood there in her majesty and her glory. What do we see in her behavior, in her words? Kind of the same as before. Like, I mean, she's not really stern in that mean way, but obviously she's very commanding. She's yes. She's very commanding presence, but she's still fairly gentle with him. Like, once he remembers, oh my God, it's you, she's like, oh, that's okay, let's talk. Yeah, and when he sees her, what does he think about? What does he remember? Yeah, the little fairy queen doll. Um, And we can remember Alf's reaction, right, when Noakes was like, oh, yes, it will be the cake of the fairy queen. Uh, And you may remember what Alf does is distance himself from it. He's like, okay, but remember, this was your idea. (laughs) I am so not getting in trouble for this. (laughs) Uh, And I think that this is not just, you know, the fairy king trying to avoid trouble uh, in his marriage, but uh, but clearly this sense in which, uh, yeah, he is he is he, but but he doesn't reject it, although he is uh, very <laughs> cold and prickly towards Noakes throughout that whole thing. Never does he rebuke him. Never does he uh, does he come after him or condemn him for doing that. And that's where the fairy queen goes with this. Smith, I almost said niggle. Smith remembers the little, the, the little figure of the fairy queen. And goodness, he doesn't even know about the figure that Noakes wanted to put up there. I mean, remember, Noakes was like, oh yeah, we'll make a little paper fairy and we'll, with a little tinsel wand and that'll be perfect. And Alf is like, all right, this is your idea. At least he makes something which is beautiful, right? A, 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 a glass or ice uh, queen. But even the ice queen, the one that Alf made, is the one that Smith is remembering, Right, the one that he actually saw on the cake, and even that makes him so embarrassed, ashamed, not only for himself but for all of his people. And what's her reaction? What's her reaction? Don't worry about it. Yeah. Why? Because it's better than no fairies at all. Yeah. She's not defensive. She has no reason to be defensive. If people misrepresent her on earth, she, you know, that, that fairy has no, has no PR department, right? I mean, there's nobody out there trying to squash these inaccurate and insulting representations of her. You know, there's no activist movement, you know, for, for the fairies. She says, it's okay. In fact, you know, it might do a little bit of good. Good can come. For some, it might be a glimpse. For others, it will be the first awakening. Even though that little doll on the cake is compared to the actual awe and majesty of the fairy queen when you're standing before her, is, feels like a terrible insult. It's still a glimpse. It's still a memory. Better for Noakes to be making fun of fairies than to have forgotten that they to have forgotten that they exist at all. Yeah? Um, I think it's interesting that you say she's not defensive. 
A lot of people get defensive, usually not when there's a fact involved, but when there's an opinion, and there can be no arguing that she has great voice. That is an immutable fact. Yeah. So she really can't be defensive. It's like, you think I'm not glorious? Well, you're crazy. Yeah, she's not affected by people's opinions. It, it doesn't, why would it matter to her what people say? Why should she be bothered? She's not threatened by them and by their opinions. And she is, on that level, her indifference to the insult is, is, is complete. What does she ask him to do? This is, I think this is the, 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 the coolest and most fascinating moment. She gives him a command. Before she gives him the message, what does she tell him to do? Yes, before that. Before she gives him the message. Good. Well, that's, yeah, the, the very first thing. And that, that's not exactly a, well, I mean, she commanded him to come and the, sort of the, 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 the orders that he was under uh, to come. And so that is interesting that the, the granting of his implicit wish, which he, he hasn't stated that we've heard, um, but the, the, the satisfaction of his implicit desire <laughs> takes the form of a command, uh, which itself is an interesting little glimpse into fairy, right? Remember, you know, as Tolkien says in On Fairy Stories, fairy is about the satisfaction of primordial desires, but one of the things that we see when those desires get satisfied, it's often more than you asked for, more than you bargained for, um, Oh, you wanted to see the fairy? Remember, he, he was going around interviewing people, we learn at this point. He was going seeking the fairy king. Hey, uh, anybody seen the fairy king? I really want to, you know, I, I kind of like to, it'd be cool to see the fairy king. And now, you know, when he is summoned into her presence, he is, well, it turns out rather differently than how he imagined it. And he recognizes how, how, how presumptuous and how flawed his very desires were. I'm thinking when she puts her hands on his head and tells him to kneel. Kneel of your courtesy, she says. Now, this would seem to be at first an assertion of authority over him, right? Kneel before me. Sounds very commanding. I am putting you in your place now. But when we look back to the beginning of this scene, we see that it's not so. On the top of 37, after the description of her, his first reaction to her, he stood before her, and he did not kneel in courtesy, for he was dismayed and felt that for one so lowly, all gestures were in vain. He's standing there thinking, I am, so un- I am such a worm, what on earth difference does it make? If I-, I mean, like, kneeling or bowing would be absolutely pointless because I am so far beneath her notice that even to ask her to accept service or courtesy from me would be presumption. And so in inviting him to kneel and using the same exact phrase, kneel of your courtesy, I will accept your courtesy. She is so far above him that for her to say, I will allow you to serve me, I will allow you to kneel before me, is praise, is elevation of him. She raises him to the level of servant. Um, it reminds me of a moment from a medieval work, but 
the associations of that are so complicated. It's from the Romance of the Rose, and I don't want to go there. Um, so never mind. Uh, but again, the elevate. You are not my slave. You are not, you know, a, a bug. You are. You are. You are a servant, uh, and I, I will. I will accept you as a servant. Um, what happens when he says goodbye? When he parts from her? We get that description on page 38. Then he knelt, and she stooped and laid her hand on his head, and a great stillness came upon him, and he seemed to be both in the world and in fairy, and also outside them and surveying them, so that he was at once in bereavement and in ownership and in peace. This moment is his farewell not only to her but to fairy itself. After this, he is walking out. He will meet Alf. They will cross the border from fairy into his world, and he will never return. This moment, this is his farewell to fairy. And what do we see? What do you make of these lines? Even if you can't come to a luminous conclusion which explains everything, tell me something you notice. Give me a bit. Liz? Really sad this well, to fairy, but it's also very at peace with it because he at least got to come and enjoy it for a while. Good. Good. There is both bereavement and peace. And what's the third ownership. item? Ownership. And that's pretty weird, isn't it? I mean, ownership, that would seem to go right back to his presumption. But it's not presumption, apparently. Marta? Um, what I noticed was that uh, there was an echo of a trumpet in the mountains, which I think, when I think of trumpets, I usually think of kind of like glory or something being announced. And I feel like that kind of gives homage to his, to his time in fairy, saying, you know, it was a good time, so don't be sad. Think back on it, and it was good. Yeah, there's something kind of triumphant, or at least, yeah, something kind of glorious in that. Um, it's bereavement, but it's not just sad. Bereavement and peace. Simultaneous bereavement and ownership as well, though. And again, it sort of looks like we begin to stare right into the face of one of those paradoxes again. Um, Is he losing it, Fairy? Well, he never had it, of course. It's one of the things that he's been slowly learning. It was never his in the first place. One could almost say that in this moment, this is the first time he is having any kind of actual ownership because it's the first time he has an actual place. In kneeling before the fairy queen and with her laying her hands on his head, this seems to be the first time he is, in some sense, properly related to the world of fairy. At the moment when he's leaving. Right? Um, So, I mean, is he losing it? Has he gained it? Well, yes. Both, in some way, it seems. Louise? Um, Well, it's like... The mix of the emotions in that line is kind of like at the beginning when he goes into fairy and he feels uh, grief and happiness. Like it's a reminder that it's not just like this happy, pretty world. Like there's also sadness and horror. And yeah. That's kind of like throughout the whole story. Like the whole thing keeps reminding us of that. Yeah. Good. Good. I agree. I mean the the relationships, all every way to think about the relationships between humans and fairy. It's 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 never just simple it's never it's it's always complex in that way 
how about the fairy king? On the one hand, we, we get more of him. I mean, we've turns out that we've known him almost from the beginning. Uh, but on the other hand, we also get less in the sense that we rarely see him acting as the fairy king, arguably only once, right, when he appears to, to old Noakes at the end, when he reveals himself to Noakes. Um, what is Smith's reaction when he finally puts it together and realizes that Alf is the fairy king? Does anyone remember what, what, what his response is, what he says? He says, you have done us too much honor. Smith seems pretty staggered by really the pretty staggering fact. If he was shocked to find himself standing in front of the fairy queen and overwhelmed by not only his appearance in her presence, but also, of course, the memory, the realization she was that girl that I was dancing with. You know, the, his, his memory of the, the condescension she had shown to him previously, and that now that is many, many times more to realize that you're the fairy and you've been living with us in this town for quite a while now, decades. This is his second great cake. So he was there three years before Noakes' great cake. So that means he came in, what? If my math is right? No, wait, seven years, sorry, before Noakes' great cake. And then three years before that. So ten years total prior to Noakes' first great cake. Seven years under Noakes and three years under the old cook before the old cook left, uh, Smith's grandfather. So that puts it at 58 years? that he's been in the town? Right? 2 times 24 plus 10? He's been, so he's been living with them for, for, for almost 60 years, never looking a day older, bless him. And, which Smith is just now picking up on. <laughs> right? And Noakes never picks up on. Uh, though there's that, that, that delightful moment when Alf draws it gently to his attention. Right? My older, you are not. You know, uh, I, I'm not going to talk about whether you're my better, but you're certainly not, not my elder. Um, he's been living with them for 58 years, and not only living with them, but first submitted to be marginalized by them, and then served them, even in the comparatively exalted position of master cook. You have done us too much honor. What does Alf say in response? Somewhat cryptically. I have been repaid. repaid. It is tempting to say, how? But I'm not sure we can really answer that question exactly. One thing we can certainly see in the king's uh, interactions with Noakes is the same kind of humility that the fairy queen showed, the same kind of disregard for human insult. It looks like he's about to give Noakes a a long-deserved smiting, right? I mean, as he looms up, what would you say to the fairy king? And he finally insults him, right? 
You are a fraud. You are a fat old liar. But then, Noakes starts bleeding. I'm just a poor old man. And he smiles and says, that's true. And he blesses him. He grants his wish and makes him thin. Thereby, it is emphasized, granting him more years of life and, and richer life. Now he can go on walks again. And, he is, and what's more, he's not changed. I mean, it would be one thing if you say, well, he, he intercedes here and he chooses instead of smashing Noakes or atomizing him as he, as he might or, or, or has every right to do. Instead, he blesses him and, and Noakes conforms and, and or, or, you know, reforms and becomes a, a changed character and goes around talking about how awesome Fairy is from now on. That would be a kind of end that we might expect or that wouldn't seem un, inappropriate under the circumstances. But instead, that's not what we get. We get a Noakes who wakes up the next morning just as self-centered as he always was, just as critical of, of Alf, just as superior, still bad-mouthing Alf and skeptical of Fairy to the end of his days, which were extraordinarily long, we find. He doesn't punish this guy, the one guy who seems, of all the people we meet, most deserving of punishment. He blesses him. Not, it seems, expecting any reward, which is good because he doesn't get any. What do we make of all this? What does this help us to see about... Well, I mean, the question that was asked on the discussion board, which I thought was an excellent question, what do the fairies get out of this? What's, why do they do what they do? Now, again, I'll say, as I said before, I don't think we can really answer that question and from the things that he says about elves and fairies and on fairy stories, you will recall Tolkien would be the first to say that we can't fully answer that question. But, but what do we see in their interactions? How do they interact? What, what's, can we begin to get any sense of what's going on with them? If we can't see what they personally have to gain from it, what's the effect of their interaction anyway? Brittany? Well, I just think like, if it doesn't mean anything for one person, for people who believe in fairy, if there are people that, that if everybody does, other people have to not believe in order for it to mean anything. They are certainly not, I mean, Alf has every opportunity to forcibly change Noakes' mind. It is clearly an act of at the very least, tolerance on his part that he permits Noakes to go on A, living, and B, holding the beliefs that he had. Um, so clearly, a goal of the fairies is not a kind of simple proselytizing. Right? They're clearly not here just in a broad and simple sense to spread the word about fairy and to to clear up all the, you know, we want to reduce the number of little tinsel wands that are made, and we want to instead, you know, give to people some kind of understanding of what fairy is really about. That's obviously either not their goal or a goal they're succeeding at very poorly. But again, they, neither of them show any interest in that. The fairy queen openly seems to denounce it. It's okay, don't be ashamed for your people. 
doesn't bother us that they make little dolls, paper dolls with tinsel wands. Eve? I mean, maybe if, like she says during that scene, it's better tinsel dolls than nothing at all. You said that fairy doesn't really have a PR. Maybe they just have a very lax PR to be even bad press. <laughs> right. <so>. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> going around complaining about all of those stupid fairies. They are not real. At least he's mentioning them. At least he's getting a word out in that. He thinks they're at least stupid or pointless. Yeah, and I think there's I, I, I think there's one way in which we can see that operating uh, in Alf's response to one of the things that Noakes says way back when they're planning the well when Noakes is supposedly planning the great cake, uh, and he says, "Oh yeah, we'll include the star." Um, he says, "It'll make the children laugh," and Alf says, "I don't think it will." He doesn't say, "Don't do that. Don't tell the children these stupid, horrible." Uh, things, he's like, oh, you go ahead, but I don't think they're going to laugh. And in fact, they don't laugh, and Smith certainly doesn't laugh. So at the same time, you know, so, so I think in that way, the fact that there are going to be lots of people like Smith and like the other children who are going to hear Noakes talking and say, you know, I, I am unsatisfied with his attitude towards fairies. Um, as, again, Alf seems to presume the children are going to feel. In that way, I think, you know, the fact that there is some idiot out there saying stupid things about fairies does still raise the question in the minds of people. And many of them are not going to think the same thing or feel the same way. Um, We have five minutes to talk about Smith. Um, The one last thing that I would say is just thinking about what is the effect that the that they, that they have? If they're not going for, you know, writing the story about fairies, what are they going for? Well, how is the town different? Smith has changed, of course. He has been profoundly affected in his family, and not just his immediate family, but his extended family, right? Uh, uh, towns in... The, uh, uh, what's his name? Tim of, of, of Noakes of Townsend, right? Uh, who is the grandnephew of smith no cuz he's not a son cuz he's he's the he's the great he's the, he's the son of smith's wife's sister anyway they're related it's 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 it's, it's a little confusing extended family though um extended family um he so, so, I mean, we, so I guess we can see the profound impact, impact it's had on Smith and his whole family, um, and thereby, of course, even making inroads into Noakes' family, though Noakes is unaware of it, right? And that is pretty evocative. But also, how has the town itself changed? You remember? Well, they say that they, um, some people don't really think about Alf very much, but most people think of him fondly, and kind of, oh, remember that one time, and yeah. It's, it's a fondness, kind of a benevolent. Yeah, they, 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 they remember Alf kindly. What, what physical change has he left, Liz? Um, the old master, the old Paul, whatever, is now like painted and gilded like it used to be. Yes. He has recovered some of the old, the ancient beauty of the town. It is now be- more beautiful than it used to be. And it's an, ancient, it's an old beauty that has been restored. He has regilded and, and glazed the hall. And Smith 
and Harper, the new master cook, keep doing it in memory of Alf, right? And also there's that moment when Smith is looking at the children at the, at the great feast when Tim receives the star, and he notices the kids seem happier and more beautiful than they used to be. And he has that moment where he says, or he wondered what else Alf had been up to during these last 58 years, right? That is, he is, this is the story of Smith of Wooten Major, but although this is apparently the only phase star that we get, it sounds like other people have been having experiences and that his influence has been felt in more than just that one family, though that one family is the focus of this story. The whole place has been enriched. Most of the people seem clearly unaware of the fact that this is because the king of fairy has been dwelling among them for almost 60 years, but that's okay. They, the fairy king and queen seem to care as little for credit as they cared for blame or, 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 or insult, right? Two minutes. How has Smith been of... What happens with Smith at the end? What do we see of him in the end of his story? Bereavement is a word used twice in that first in that paragraph when he weaves when he parts from the fairy queen and then again later on. Elise? Well it's more in general about his family, like he realizes that he's kind of neglected his family now he's gonna take more the role of the father. Yeah, his son is gentle in reminding him of this, right? He's really sorry for his father's loss. This is also it will be a good thing, too, for this house. And Smith himself seems to confirm that, right? When his son's like, oh, I can't go with you because i got to work at the forge, and he's like, no, 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 you take a holiday tomorrow. From now on, I'm going to be working with you. There will be two sets of hands on the, uh, at the forge every workday. Um, and I don't think that we're to see this as like a hard condemnation of Smith and what he'd been, you know, that what he was doing before was really bad. Just as his wandering, he was given a ticket into Ferry. It was not, as he came to believe, a passport to go anywhere he wanted and do anything he wanted, but he was given by grace a ticket into Ferry. Going there and wandering there was not wrong. And so similarly, it's not like, oh, he's been horribly neglectful. He was a bad father and now he has to atone for being a bad father. No, it's just that good will come of his being there more. And again, as the son gently says, there is much I have yet to learn from you, Master Smith, and about more than just ironworking. Right. Um, his own view, Smith's own view on that, is again similarly mixed. How does he respond when he's asked to give up the star? He doesn't want to. He says it's mine and why should I have to give it up? Yeah, it came to me. It's mine. Uh, you have every... It's, if you are thinking of Bilbo here, that is perfectly okay. Tolkien inevitably was too. I mean, this was written, this was written you know, a, a couple decades after he wrote that in the, in the Fellowship of the Ring. So um, I, I cannot imagine that the, the, the similarity in the language here was lost on him. Um, but notice what immediately happens afterwards. The two places where, th th there are two places where the language here sounds almost exactly like Bilbo giving up the ring. The first is when he says, it's mine, it came to me. And the second is when uh, Alf notes with appreciation, as Gandalf noted with appreciation, that he gave it up of his own free will. Right? But the big difference between 
of course, the ring and the star, and between Smith and Bilbo, is that there is not this possessiveness. He has that fight. It's, it's mine. It, it came to me. But then immediately, what rises up in him? Is it his generosity? Yes. Generosity and gratitude, both of them. Recognizes it would be ungrateful for me to try to keep this. And he is a generous person. He, he also wants to share it with someone else. There's something that much that he really likes about the idea of passing it on. It's hard to give it up. He doesn't want to give it up. But he really likes the idea of giving it away, too. In that way, it's not much like Bilbo. Um, but uh, notice Alf does offer him a kind of compromise. Um, he kind of thinks, oh, I, I should give it to the fairy king. That means I should go back into fairy to search for him to give it back. That would be good, right? Because he just wants to go back again. And Alpha's like, no. Says, but I'm also not going to make you hand it to me right now either. You can go and put it in the box yourself. Um, allowing him a little while longer to be used to the idea and to understand what it is that he's doing. And again, to emphasize his doing it. I'm not going to take it from you. Remember, Smith gets mad when, when Alf reaches up and touches his forehead and the light goes out in the star. And he can see the light go out by the reflection in Alf's eyes. And he's like, hey, hands off my star, man. <laughs> and that's the first time he, the first time he has this, this confrontation. But he does give the star freely. And, of course, the consequence of that is that he's allowed to choose to whom it goes. Which, of course, turns out to be exactly whom it was going to go to anyway. Which is nice. Um, His final words upon viewing Tim. Uh, Tim was a good singer beforehand. Smith only started singing when he got the star. What does is, what is Tim start doing when he gets the star? Dancing. Yeah. It is the graceful. He was a pretty clumsy dancer. He's this you know, porky little kid who doesn't dance very well before he gets the star. And then he gets the star and he starts dancing with, with unusual grace. And, Tim, and Smith looks at him and says, all is well then. And that's in many ways, the note that his story ends on. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Now, in the next class, we will start our discussion of the Silmarillion. You should read the first two sections of the book. Both are quite short. They are called the Ainu Lindale, the creation myth of Middle-earth, and the Valaquenta, which is an account and description of the Valar, the local gods of that world. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.